Amen. Uh, do you need a joke this morning? I have one. It's slightly inappropriate, um, but it's going to snow today, so maybe some of your, you just need something to lighten your, lighten your hearts a little bit. Um, so it's a, it's a bar joke, which is what makes it kind of inappropriate, but I like the bar, you know, the, the priest, the rabbi, and the minister walk into the bar, those kind of jokes, so I, I like those. So this one goes like this. Guy walks into a bar and orders a drink, and, and behind the bar is a horse serving the drinks. And the horse gives him his drink, and the guy just stares at the horse, stares at him, stares at him. And finally, the horse gets a little tired of this and says, what, have you never seen a horse own a bar before? He says, no, I just never thought the parrot would sell the place. So I just heard that the other day. I like that one. And if you're wondering, what does that have to do with anything? Well, my mom is here today. And this is a true story. When my mom was started in the Salvation Army, she was single at the time, and on, to raise money, she would go into bars and ask people for, for money. Is that a true story? She, yes, this is not a pleasant memory for her, but that, that, it's there. And then one day, she went in and asked for, and, and the guy, because my mom weighs 80 pounds, dripping wet, and the guy picked her up and set her on the bar stool next to her, and that was the last day she went into bars <laughs> looking for for offerings. I don't know, who, whose idea was that in the Salvation Army? That was n- not yours, right? Yeah, that wasn't her idea, so anyways, she's faithful. It was good to have my mom here, and now that she's been humiliated. My dad used to tell jokes about her, which is why I feel the need to, to do that. When I was a little kid, this is the kind of memories I have of my dad preaching. I don't remember anything he says except the jokes, and so one day, this, oh, I, I gotta get going here. Uh, one day, uh, we, we went somewhere, we flew somewhere, and this is what my dad says. My mom's sitting on the platform behind my dad, and my dad says, you know, I'm a little angry today because we flew here, Continental Airlines, which existed back then, and, and you know, they say, fly Continental and leave your problems behind. Well, I look behind me, and she's still there, and that's <laughs> also a true story, right? Yes, yeah, okay. That's enough mortification of the mom, Okay. Well, the instructions this morning were to share whatever the Lord lays on my heart. And opening to instructions like that are, are great. They're kind of a gift, but they're also a little paralyzing. You know, permission to talk about anything means we can talk about everything. And we all know that the sermon that's about everything is a sermon that's about nothing. And that's a dangerous thing. So what I'd like to do this morning and next week when I come back is um, try to begin to solve a problem that has been bugging me for a long time. And I don't know if it's been bugging you, but... Maybe it'll bug you now, and you'll try and start figuring this out too. But Luke 24, and it's not our scripture reading. You don't have to go there. I'll just tell you what happens. There's this great story that takes place after the the death and resurrection of Jesus. Two discouraged followers of Jesus are walking along a path from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. We call this the road to Emmaus story. And um, they know Jesus has died, but they don't know what to make of reports that he's come back to life, that the body is missing. So they're walking and talking, and as Luke tells the story, it says Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And this is a funny story and a frustrating story for me. The funny part is that the unrecognized Jesus joins these two guys as they're walking, and he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And one of the guys is named Cleopas, and he says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And pretty much Jesus was intimately aware of what had been going on in Jerusalem. That's some kind of irony there. Um, 
But for whatever reason, he doesn't let on. And so Cleopas goes on. We've been talking about Jesus. He was this great prophet, and we thought he was going to come and redeem Israel. But he was killed. And now there's these confusing reports about angels and a missing body. We don't know what to think. And Jesus said this, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And now the frustrating part. Luke says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Can you imagine that seven-mile walk with Jesus explaining the Old Testament? Uh, The scriptures that Jesus refers to are what we call the Old Testament. That's the only Bible that existed then. The New Testament was being lived. It hadn't been written yet. So when Jesus is talking about how the scriptures talk about him, he's talking about that Old Testament part. And at the end of the story, Jesus eventually reveals himself to the people, and then he disappears. And the guys say this, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And that's the frustrating part for me. Luke doesn't say a word about what Jesus said. I mean, he tells us what Jesus said, but not what he said. And uh, so when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a little conversation with Luke. I'll probably have to stand in line like everybody else, but... You know, you wrote 24 chapters of a gospel. You couldn't add a 25th chapter to kind of clue us in what that was out there. I'd like my heart warm too. So anyways, that's the puzzle I'm trying to solve these days. And so this message this morning is titled, The Old is New. And it's a problem-solving exercise. And it's the beginning of my trying to understand how the scriptures, the Old Testament, was about Jesus. So we're going to go to a story from the Old Testament, see how it connects to Jesus, and then hopefully see how it connects to our own lives today. That's the plan today. And i got to be done before the Super Bowl. I know that. So let's keep going. Uh, for our scripture reading, though, this morning, Numbers 21, 4 through 9. If you would like to follow along in the Bible, Numbers 29, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The fourth one in. Uh, otherwise, we'll put it up on the screen there as well. Luke says that Jesus began with Moses to explain things. So I thought we'd begin a story with a story from the life of Moses. So this is uh, Numbers 21, 4 through 9. And I think, do we still stand for the scripture reading? If we're able, let's do that, please. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. That's God's word. Please be seated. This morning, uh, messages in three parts. I'd like to talk about the heart of sin, the penalty of sin, and the remedy of sin. The heart and the penalty and the remedy of sin. We're going to look at this passage and then briefly look at a passage in the New Testament that refers back to it. So let's start with the heart of sin. Context for that little passage that we just read is the Israelite nation after God had brought them out of Egypt. In the storyline of the Bible, the Israelite nation begins with this guy named Abram, whose name becomes Abraham. 
God makes this promise to him. He says, you're going to be a great nation, and you're going to have a land to live in. So Abraham and his wife Sarah had a son. His name was Isaac. And then Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, one of whom was named Jacob. And he becomes uh, renamed as Israel, which is where we get the Israelites from. He had 12 sons. You probably remember all this story. And they lived in what today is maybe the most highly contested part of the world today, modern Israel. Well, famine hits a part of the world, Palestine then, and the famine brings the family down to Egypt where they hang out for a while to survive the famine, and God is faithful, and that family becomes a nation. Time goes by, and as they get bigger and bigger in numbers, the, the Egyptians kind of freak out a little bit and decide, these people are going to overtake us. We better enslave them, and they do. And then the Bible says this in Exodus 1, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And what does God do? He sends this guy named Moses to free the Israelites, take them in the land that he promised to give to Abraham and his descendants, and they lived happily ever after the end. No, you're shaking your head. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. That's not how it ends, right? While Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob um, trusted God to do what he said, their descendants don't have that same trusting relationship. God's made that promise of land, but the Israelite people don't trust God to keep his promise for that land. And the problem is, everything God wanted to do in and through the nation of Israel required them to trust him, to lean on him, to depend on him. And one Bible teacher uh, imagines it this way. This trusting relationship with God would be critical to the people's identity to fulfill their destiny. Once they entered the land of promise, the Israelites were to live differently than the people groups in the surrounding regions. They were to live as God reflectors. The commandments, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother, and so on, were to set Israel apart from the nations. The idea was that others would be drawn to the creator God, whose character is marked by faithfulness, truth, dependability, and honor because of their encounters with this faithful, truthful, dependable, honorable people. The Israelites were to demonstrate through their lives what the creator God is like. Traders traveling the caravan routes connecting Babylon with Egypt would be able to take tales of the strange people from nation to nation. I can hear them saying, you don't have to lock your door because theft is virtually unheard of. We could sleep at night without fear of being killed or of our cargo being plundered. There's a high level of honor and respect. They honor their parents, their neighbors, and their promises. Husbands and wives do not betray the vows they've made to each other. The hilltops are not dotted with altars to Baal or Moloch, and the blessing of their God is obvious upon their lives. Now, to create a nation like that in a new land means the Israelites are going to have to trust God. But time and time again in the, in the desert, they failed to do that very thing. And 13 times, you can, you can count them, the Israelites complained to Moses and God. They complained that talk of a promised land caused Pharaoh to make things worse for them. They complained to Moses, leave us alone. They complained about bitter water. They complained about being hungry, which is where God began providing manna. That's the miserable food that they detested. They complained about being thirsty. They turned their backs on God and worshipped a golden calf. They complained about food. They complained about Moses' leadership. They complained about how difficult it looked to conquer the giants in the land, so they refused to enter the promised land. And it goes on and on, and things are getting out of hand to the point 
where they wanted to kill Moses, choose another leader to take them back to Egypt. Key leaders rebel. And so by the time we get to our passage this morning, it's as though God had said, enough. (laughs) And at the root of all of this is a trust issue. They don't trust God to do what he has promised to do. And at one point, an entire generation was condemned to die in the desert for lack of trust. Now, we should note real quickly here that the Bible does make a distinction between complaining to God and rejecting God outright. God invites our complaints, but he won't be dismissed. Uh, There's many stories of people in the Bible who had complaints but didn't reject God. One of them is Job. All kinds of things fall on him, right? Deaths of his children, intense physical pain. But what does the Bible says? It says this, Job worshipped. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The book of Psalms is full of complaints. Psalm 142, 1 through 2. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. No problem going to God with your complaints and concerns. Peter said, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I think we heard a similar thought this morning or this morning when we started. So when the Israelites speak against God and say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They aren't complaining. They're questioning. They're rebelling. It's a mutiny. They're saying, we'd be better off without you, God. Heart of sin is a failure to trust God. As Paul would say it a couple of thousand years later, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. We like to think of sin as things we do and don't do. I didn't do that. I should have done that. I did that. I shouldn't have done that. But underneath all those actions is this thing called trust or not trust. So if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, I hope you'll hear this. For God... Faith is a serious matter. God is not Tinkerbell. You know, he doesn't cease to exist when we don't believe in him. But in a real and eternal way, we will cease to exist when we don't acknowledge who he is. Uh, Christmas, uh, I can't even believe it's February now. Christmas should have been just last week, but life's marching on. Anyone watch Elf at Christmas this year? We have a couple. Yeah, I I missed it. There's no judgments here. I I like Elf. And um, I missed it somehow this year. There's a scene where Santa's sleigh breaks down. It's the best scene in the movie. Breaks down because the people have stopped believing in Santa. The sleigh has, if I recall correctly, a clausometer attached to it. And when it's low, the sleigh cannot fly. But when the people of New York begin singing, Santa Claus is coming to town, the clausometer goes back up and the sleigh flies again. In other words, Santa is dependent on the New Yorker's trust. It's a surprisingly emotional scene, which that's another day. But it's exactly the opposite of how faith works in the Bible. God is not dependent on your trust or my trust for his existence. Our trust is the way we depend on him for our life and existence. Hebrews 11, 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The Israelites have lost faith. They've rebelled. And that brings us to the second point this morning, the penalty of sin. 
What happens when we, when we don't trust God? Well, there are consequences. And this is the difficult part of the passage you read this morning. Our passage says this, Numbers 21.6, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Other translations will call them fiery serpents, and the commentators debate whether this means that the serpents are red like fire or that their bite caused such an intense burning sensation. It really doesn't matter because the point is that God sent snakes snakes that brought death. And it's interesting that uh, God sent snakes, I think. Genesis 3, it was a serpent that came and talked to Eve, if you recall. Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the serpent and Eve have that conversation that boils down to a question of trust. Who are you going to believe? The serpent says, don't trust what God has said. Trust me. Believe me. And the serpent tempted Eve to, not to trust God. And she was deceived. And the result was what? Death. And now in our passage this morning, we have actual serpents bringing actual death to people. Now, snakes, I think, are a picture of the result of the sin of unbelief in our lives. One of the clearest messages of the Bible is that sin brings death. Psalm 32, 1 through 2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Of course, the opposite's true, right? Miserable is the one whose transgressions are not forgiven, whose sins are not covered. Miserable is the one whose sin the Lord counts against them. The writer of the book of Hebrews often reflects on events from the Old Testament. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 refers to this time in the life of the Israelites in the desert. He says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, a story we read this morning we don't like it very much. And by we, I mean our culture. For one, God seems a little vindictive. You know, imagine, I imagine it would be tiring to have the same food three times a day, you know, morning, noon, and night, every day, every year, for year after year. Why get mad at that? And then more than that, we don't like this idea of an ultimate authority who kind of gets to set the rules for how life is. We want to say, you know, I'm climbing up my own path on the same mountain. I'm finding God my own way. Unbelief is sin. And here's how one commentator describes it. The biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God, which is the source of all joy and indeed of all love, wisdom, or good things of any sort. Since we were originally created for God's immediate presence, only before his face will we thrive, flourish, and achieve our highest potential. Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God, on a trajectory into infinity. In eternity, this disintegration goes on forever. There is increasing isolation, denial, delusion, and self-absorption. The people in hell are miserable. They are utterly, finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness. All God does in the end with people is give them what they want most. Well, this would be a very sad story this morning if it ended there. You didn't believe, now you die. But so we get this third point, which is there's a remedy for sin. And let's finish with that this morning. The remedy for sin. 
Numbers 21, 7 through 9 said, The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. God got the attention of the Israelites. And one thing you can say about them, I mean, they like to complain a lot, and we can focus on that, but they were also quick to repent and humble themselves before God. Now, the end of the story is a little difficult to understand. I mean, doesn't the snake on a pole seem kind of arbitrary? What is that about? God wanted to heal the people. Couldn't he just heal them? And God had already told the people not to make any carved images. And here he is telling Moses, make a carved image. In fact, years later, King Hezekiah, this is in 2 Kings 18.4, he would have to destroy this carving because it had become an idol that people were offering incense to. So they got rid of it. My interpretation was that this was meant as a one-time event, a focal point that years later would become an object lesson for people. God says, look and live. It was a good news, bad news situation. If you trusted God and looked at the snake on a pole, you lived. If you didn't look, you died. And it didn't really matter why you didn't look. You might have thought it wouldn't work, or you might have been mad at God. It didn't matter. You died when you didn't look. And I suppose the Israelites could have complained about the way. They complained about everything else, so they could have done this. They could have said, hey, Moses, this is kind of dumb, putting a snake on the pole. What's this all about? And I can hear Moses firing back. Do you want to complain about the way, or do you want to rejoice that there is a way? If you wanted to live, you trusted God and looked at the snake on a pole, and you lived. Trust in its synonyms in English are, are, are not great words in English to, to kind of convey the meaning in the original languages. We often think of faith, belief, trust, they're all the same thing, as things we agree to in our heads. Most churches like ours have a statement of faith. If you go on the, the website today, you can find out, not now, later, you know, go, if you can find out we, what we believe about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the Bible, about salvation. Our statement of faith is probably fairly in line with what I think most churches would agree with. But a statement of faith, an intellectual assent, you know, I agree with that, is not what the Bible means by faith. They're all the same word in the Bible. Faith, believe, and trust, and there's an action component to faith that gets left out in our culture today. So while modern people sometimes talk about belief as something in the head, biblical belief has an action to it. So imagine you're sick, and the doctor says, if you take this course of medicine, you'll get better. And there's a belief that says, you know what, doctor, I believe you're right. I believe that if I took that medicine, I would get better. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith goes and gets the prescription filled, takes the medicine, and actually gets better because there's action to it. We've talked about the consequence of not believing. Well, why does believing, trusting, matter so much? And it matters for our purposes because our entire life with God begins and ends with faith. Faith is what keeps following Christ from being just another religion where people try hard, doing their best to do what they think will get them in good with God. For honest, sometimes the Christian message is often a moral message. Do this, don't do that, and God will be happy with you. Let's try harder, people. 
the thing that God wants more than anything is trust. For us to take his promises and lean on him. And when we do trust God, he forgives our sins. He places his spirit in us and he changes us from the inside out. And that's some good news for us this morning. Uh, Hundreds of years after this little incident in the desert with the Israelites, Jesus would be having a conversation with a really good man. His name is Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. It's John 3. And Nicodemus recognized that Jesus had come from God. He says so much. And I think he believed that Jesus was who he said he was. And he was trying to make sense of how his religious life fit in with what Jesus was saying. And Nicodemus' whole life could be summed up in this one idea. I obey, therefore God accepts me. And Jesus was trying to introduce this new way, which was not a new way at all, it was an old way, but this new way of faith that says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And as Jesus and Nicodemus are having this conversation, Jesus says this, John 3, 14 through 18, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So the significance of the snake on the pole is this. It was a picture of Jesus on the cross. Jesus would become a snake on a pole for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And that's where we're going to pick up the story next week. So I'd like to finish this morning with the good news, bad news scenario. The good news is God is not inviting us to become religious people today. God is asking us to relate to him through his son, Jesus. More good news is that anyone who believes in Jesus, who trusts in him, has eternal life. Bad news. What happens when we don't trust? The Bible says we perish. We're bitten by the snake of sin and we haven't looked to the remedy. By the way, The good news should not make anyone in here prideful. Difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not necessarily I'm better and they're worse. I know some very fine people who are maybe better than I am. Differences between forgiven and not forgiven, and that has nothing to do with us. I'd like to close this morning uh, with a story. It's uh, the story of how the great preacher, Charles uh, Spurgeon, became a Christian. It's this conversion story. He was I lived in the 1800s, and he was sometimes called the Prince of Preachers. Listen how, he, listen how he came to Jesus. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, until it had not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, 
and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. The grace of the new birth is our seeing Christ lifted up. Then the good man followed up on his text this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating and great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing else to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to him alone. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. May that be all of our song this morning. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for the scriptures that tell us about you. And um, don't know what it's like to have been one of those Israelites. It must have been a really confusing time. Thank you that we get to live now when your son has come and has told us what that story means. And Lord, may we look to you today anew. 
Thank you that coming to you is a matter of simple faith and trust. We love you today, Lord, and uh, we are grateful for your love for us. And for anyone this morning maybe who's never, ever made that first-time commitment to trust in God, or maybe you've kind of drifted away and would like to renew that, just ask you right now, um, with everybody's heads down, eyes closed, if you'd like to put your trust in Jesus this morning, would you, would you raise your hand? Just connect eyes with me. We'll agree together. Thank you. Anyone else? I see that hand too. Lord, thank you for those two outstretched hands this morning. Those were acts of faith. And thank you that your salvation appears to everyone who trusts in you this morning. And we rejoice as we know in heaven there is rejoicing over one sinner that repents. Lord, we celebrate that love this morning and we thank you for it and for all the good you're doing in our lives in this congregation. And through us, uh, we give you thanks and praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen.